We're continuing our sermon series through Advent, uh, through uh, the prophecies of the prophet Isaiah, uh, thinking about what it looks like to wait for Christ during this season, for him to return again. Before we read today's scripture from Isaiah 62, let us turn to the Lord and pray that he would bless the reading and hearing of his word. Let's pray together. Holy and loving God, your word became flesh and dwelt among us. Through him who was the image of the invisible God, you have been revealed to us that we might know your goodness and be led in your truth. As we read and meditate on your written word this day, help us to not simply see stagnant words on a page, but help us to find you in all of your power and might and to be transformed in your presence, according to your dear son, Jesus Christ. For this we pray in his name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Our reading this morning is from Isaiah chapter 62, verses 1 through 12. Hear the word of the Lord. It is written. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nation shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen all the day and all the night. They shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm. I will not again give your grain to be food for your enemies. And foreigners shall not drink your wine for which you have labored, but those who garner it shall eat it and praise the Lord, and those who gather it shall drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. Go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, clear it of stones, lift up a signal over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. Now to him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ be all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Last week, we said that Advent is a season of waiting. 
It's a season of waiting in two ways, not only as we await Christmas morning that we might celebrate and rejoice once again over the gift that God has given us in his son, Jesus Christ, but also as we are reminded that we are perpetually awaiting Jesus Christ's return again in glory. And we said that this waiting is not a passive thing. It's not a passive waiting, but an active waiting. It isn't a waiting in which we're sitting twiddling our thumbs, but it's a waiting in which we find opportunity to make the most of our time by nurturing our faith. Nor is our waiting a distracted waiting. It isn't a waiting in which we are busy for the sake of busyness. We aren't simply trying to fill up our time. Rather, it is a focused and disciplined waiting. All of our activity in our waiting is purposeful and directed toward a goal. And so to think about how we are to await the coming again of Jesus Christ, how we are to wait in an active and disciplined manner, we look to the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah in his prophecies not only tells us about the one who God's people are to wait for, the coming Messiah, But he also tells us how we are to wait. So last week we examined how Isaiah reveals that we must wait in humility. We cannot receive the gift that God has freely given and graciously offered us in Jesus Christ in any other way than in humility. Jesus, the light of the world, shines his light on every aspect of our lives, exposing our sin and our brokenness, our deep need for salvation but also exposing our powerlessness and inadequacy to bring light into our own darkness to save ourselves. Salvation then is found by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. So in order to receive this free gift of God's grace, we must admit that we can't save ourselves and confess our sins and turn and place our faith in Jesus, which means we must come before God in humility and trust in him to deliver us from sin's power over us. Therefore, as we await the return of Christ Jesus, we must be active in practicing humility. We must be active in hearing God's word and what it says about us, especially through the person of Jesus Christ, allowing it to reveal to us the depth of our sin, how far short we fall from God's glory, examining ourselves and finding our deep need for a Savior, casting ourselves on God's grace and mercy in Christ. In fact, Peter tells us that the Lord's delay in coming again is in order that we might have time to acknowledge and repent of our sin and to turn to Christ to be saved. Peter says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. We must be active then in praying to God to reveal our sin to us through his word and to help us by his spirit to turn away from it. As God shows us where our lives are not in conformity to his will, we must be active in repenting of our sin and putting it to death. But as I said last week, humility is not the only way in which we must wait. 
It's an essential aspect of our waiting. It is where we must begin, but scripture has much more to say about how we are to wait. So what else does God tell us in his word about numbering our days aright as we await the coming again of our Savior and King? Our passage this morning from Isaiah 62 tells another way in which we are called to wait. You see, this passage serves as a summary of a subdivision found in Isaiah that includes chapters 60 through 62. And by the way, we see a very similar thing in Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 11, from which our call to worship was taken this morning, and chapter 52, verses 1 through 12. These passages also serve as summaries for subdivisions found in Isaiah, and they have very similar messages as well. Each of these summary passages provide a word of hope about the coming salvation to a people who are in anguish and exile. They are an encouragement to God's people to prepare to receive their salvation by calling them to an active kind of faith. As one commentator puts it, God has shown them his vision of who they are and what they may become. He has given them a glimpse of the glorious future that lies at the end of faith's road. Now he calls them to act on what they have seen and heard, to live in the assurance that all God's promises are true. And I want to encourage you to spend some time later this afternoon reading and meditating on these texts and comparing them with what we find here in chapter 62. Anyhow, in chapter 62, the prophet Isaiah proclaims that despite the despair that was experienced by God's people because of God's just judgment against them, there would come a day when God would save them and give them a new name. Even though it might seem, as, seem to them as though God had abandoned them, God was actively working to bring about their salvation. God would redeem them. And the result of this redemption would be that they who were once mocked by the nations would become the object of its praise and wonder. Even though all that was theirs was taken by these other nations, the day would come when God's people would enjoy the fruits of their own harvest once again. And this, according to Isaiah, would be the source of praise in God's sanctuary. And so no longer would they be called forsaken? No longer would they be called desolate. The time of being mocked and plundered by the other nations would come to an end, and no longer would they be alienated from God in their sin. Rather, Israel would be brought near to God and known as God's delight, a crowned jewel in his hand, his beloved bride, the one in whom he rejoices. And the nations would all recognize her as such. These are wonderful promises. And the Lord wanted his people to have confidence in his promises, so he added an assurance here in chapter 62 in verses 6 and 7, telling them that he had assigned a watchman, an angel, to his heavenly court to remind him constantly of his promises to his people. And this was reminiscent of a position in the courts of the Israelite kings. There was one in the court whose title was the one who reminds. It was this person's job to remind the king of what he said he would do. 
And so using this position that is familiar to his people, God assures them that he would not fail to remember and do what he had said he would do for them. And this was important because surely there would be times in which things became very dark and doubt would arise about God's faithfulness to deliver Israel. But we, looking from the other side of history, know that God has been faithful to his word, even as we wait for the full realization of his promises. And as we read through God's promises in Isaiah 62, there are two really important truths that we shouldn't miss. The first of these might be really easy to miss because it is fairly subtle. So first, notice that there is a profound connection between Israel's salvation and her righteousness. There is a profound connection between Israel's salvation and her righteousness. You see this connection in the first couple of verses of this chapter. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet. Until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations will see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. Now, why is this connection between Israel's salvation and righteousness important? Well, there are several reasons, but to start with, we are reminded here that Israel's righteousness is only possible because of the saving activity of God. Israel's righteousness does not come from Israel. Israel is not righteous apart from God. They are not able to do the things that are pleasing to God. They have not done what is right in God's sight. In fact, they have sinned against God and against one another. They have rebelled against God and have gone their own way. They don't even deserve to be saved from their sins, so they certainly can't consider righteous, be considered righteous in and of themselves. Their righteousness then comes first and foremost from the Lord. You see, God's people are not simply receiving salvation as a gift. This isn't the extent of God's blessings. Being saved from their sins, being freed from their iniquity is not the end of God's work in their lives. Rather, it is the beginning. What this passage makes clear is that one day God's light would dawn on Israel. No longer would God resign his people to wander confused in the darkness. A savior would come and shine the light of God's love and righteousness on them. Behold, Isaiah says in verse 11, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him. So his work would not only include providing an atonement for sin, salvation from sin, but it would also include providing a righteousness to cover God's people. Isaiah 62 then points to the approaching reality that a Messiah would come and give them by grace a righteousness that they are unable to accomplish in and of themselves. The Messiah would provide that righteousness that the covenant, their covenant with God demanded. In other words, Isaiah here is telling of one who would know no sin who would live in perfect obedience to the law, yet for the sake of God's people, he would become sin. 
so that in him God's people might become the righteousness of God. The Messiah would offer up his perfect life for the sins of God's people. He would exchange his righteousness for their sinfulness. He is telling of the one who would redeem God's people from the curse of the law as one, for as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. This is what the Apostle Paul teaches us, right? For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is a glorious reality that Isaiah is pointing to here and throughout his prophecies. This is why in Romans 3, the apostle Paul says about Jesus' coming, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets, Isaiah, bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. In Jesus Christ, God has justly judged sin and poured out his wrath on sin. And yet, through Christ Jesus, God justified all who place their faith in the work of Jesus Christ on their behalf. He sets them right, declares them to be righteous. So salvation and righteousness are bound together. But we also need to see a second important truth. Isaiah is revealing that God is not saving people from bondage to sin and darkness to simply let them loose and make them independent people. No, 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 no. This is about relationship. These people who once felt forsaken and abandoned are now brought near to God. They are accepted as God's beloved children. They are the ones in whom God delights. They are his beloved bride. Salvation then is about restored relationship. And it wasn't ever simply about a legal status, of being seen as legally right before God is our judge. It is much, much more than that. And as we are brought into relationship with a holy God, we are made to be holy by our relation to him. This is why salvation and righteousness are bound together. This is why God isn't interested in simply saving us from our sins. This is why being free from our sins is only the beginning. It is because in saving us from our sins, in order that we might be reconciled in our relationship with him, we are made holy as he is holy. But our righteousness is not simply an imputed righteousness. It isn't just that God gives us his righteousness as a gift in Jesus Christ. He does do this. But what we find is that our relationship with God is transformative. 
as we draw near to God as his redeemed people, as those whose lives have been reconciled back into relationship with him, our lives are shaped by God's character. We take on God's attributes. So righteousness is also something that we are called to as those who have been brought into relationship with God through Jesus Christ by the power of his Holy Spirit. Are you with me? Therefore, Isaiah is calling all those redeemed by God to be the people God has made them to be by his grace in the Messiah. This means, dearly beloved, as those who are in Christ Jesus, we are holy by virtue of our relationship with him. But we are also called to live into that reality. In other words, righteousness is something that is not only true of us because of the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf, but it is something that is meant to be realized through our lives. We are called to live lives of active obedience. So holiness is not only declared by the gospel, it is also commanded by the gospel. In fact, this is why we were saved according to Scripture. As one commentator states, the goal of God's saving activity is unmistakably righteous living. This is what Isaiah is getting at here in chapter 62. People are not just saved from sin and oppression, but saved for the sake of lives lived to the praise of the glory of God. Lives live that are holy and pleasing to God. This is why Paul begins his letter to the church in Ephesus. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And Paul will later say in chapter 2, for by grace you have been saved by faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. But then he says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We've been saved by grace that we might live righteous lives before the Lord. As one commentator summarizes so well, the end result of all God's work on our behalf is not some state or condition of our own, but a relationship with him, one of acceptance, redemption, and holiness. It is a relationship in which the redeemed are enabled and empowered to have the character of the one to whom they belong, replicated in themselves. So the redeemed of the Lord weren't saved from their sin and accepted by God only to continue to sit in their sin. This isn't the picture that we get from Isaiah. We see the redeemed living lives that exalt their Messiah who proclaim him to the ends of the earth. And this is why, also why, the New Testament rejects the notion that those who claim the name of Christ should continue to live in unrepentant sin. They are called, rather, to cast off the old ways of darkness and walk 
in the light of Jesus Christ. Look at how Paul says it in Romans 13, which we use for our call to confession and repentance this morning. Besides this, you know from, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in daytime, not in orgies or drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. We shouldn't miss that the call to live holy lives here and in other places in the New Testament aren't just in light of our reality as those who have been made holy because we have been redeemed and reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, but also in light of his second coming. We have a righteousness given to us by God, as we have said, because of what he has done for us in Jesus Christ, but we are also called to be righteous, to live holy lives as those preparing for the coming again of Jesus. So we live in between the Messiah's comings. In between Isaiah's prophecy that a Messiah would come to bring salvation and righteousness And the full realization of this prophecy when God's people would dwell with God eternally and live in the perfect peace and joy and righteousness of his everlasting kingdom. We haven't yet been made perfect in righteousness ourselves, even though we have received the perfect righteousness of Christ, which has set us right with God, which has justified us. But God gives us grace in the here and now to live lives of holiness for his name's sake. This is what the Apostle Paul says in his letter to the Philippians, right? He states, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul was saying that he was not already perfect in righteousness. While he had received the righteousness from God that depends on faith, while he had been covered by Christ's perfect righteousness by God's grace, personal righteousness that comes from living according to God's will had not been fully realized in him. He had not been fully sanctified. And so even as Jesus Christ had claimed Paul as his own, Paul made it his goal to lay hold of Christ in the same way that Jesus Christ had laid hold of him. He wanted to live into the righteousness that Christ had given to him by grace. He was striving for that perfect righteousness, even though he knew that it would come not on this side of eternity. But this is our proper response to God's grace to us in Jesus Christ. It isn't to continue to wallow in our sin. It isn't to continue to remain living in darkness. It is to live holy lives as those who have been claimed by a holy God. I hope that you have gotten this in our time that we have spent so far in the Ten Commandments. What does God say to his people right before he gives the commandments to them? 
In Exodus 19, verses 4 through 6, God says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The result of the Israelites being saved and brought into covenant relationship with God is that they are called to holiness, to reflect God's character to all the world. And even though they would never be able to keep this covenant and to please God by living righteous lives through perfect obedience to the law, we, as those who are in Jesus Christ, who did live a perfect life in obedience to the law, are able to live lives that are pleasing to God, empowered by the Holy Spirit. So in Isaiah, we find a very clear understanding of the connection between the coming of Christ and the establishment of God's people as a holy people. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And so how are we to await Christ's return? We are to wait in holiness. This is Peter's understanding, isn't it? That finally, through the church of Jesus Christ, God's people are indeed a holy people. Peter states, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And in addition to thinking very generally about what it means to live righteous lives by living in active obedience to God, I think that Isaiah also gives us a very practical lesson about holy living in chapter 62. We see this language in verse 10 about preparing the way for the people. Just as Isaiah called for a straight highway to be built, for all the valleys to be raised up, for all the hills to be flattened out, all the rough places made smooth in chapter 40, Isaiah also calls here for the way to be cleared. How are you to prepare for the Messiah's coming? Clear away the stones. Remove all the obstacles. The interesting thing about what Isaiah says in verse 10 is that there are several ways that we can interpret it. Is it about preparing the way for the Messiah to come to us and realize his promises among us? Or is it referring to the way by which the redeemed people will come into the city of God? Or is it about the way by which the nations will come home to God? And I think the answer to the question of which of these is the correct interpretation is yes. If we want to truly make space for our, in our lives for Jesus Christ to rule as Lord and Savior over our lives, we must declutter our lives. If we want to make our way to the fullness of God's kingdom and even now enjoy the reality of God's kingdom, as well as help others to do the same, we must declutter our lives. 
if we want the nations to know the blessing of having Jesus Christ as a Savior, that they too might come and bow before him and worship him, then we must declutter our lives. Isn't this what the writer of Hebrews tells us? Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. This is a matter of practical discipleship, of practical holiness. This is why John the Baptist precedes Jesus by quoting Isaiah's call to prepare the way of the Lord. This is what God's word says about John. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him, before Jesus, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. To make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And how did he do this? He pled with the people to prepare themselves for Christ's coming by removing all obstacles that were keeping them from living holy lives and making room for the Messiah. And this is what the Apostle Paul committed himself to, wasn't it? He said he counted everything as rubbish in order to know Christ Jesus, in order that he might gain Christ and be found in him, in order that he might experience the power of the resurrection of Christ. So dearly beloved, we need to ask ourselves this morning, what is keeping us from God? What's keeping you from loving God and loving your neighbor? What's keeping you from sharing the greatness of God's saving work with others? What stones need to be cleared away from your life? You have idols that need to be destroyed. Do you love comfort or the pleasures of this life more than Jesus? Are you too busy for him? Have you distracted yourself with worldly ambitions? Have you traded Jesus' call for self-denial with the world's lie of self-care? Have you convinced yourself that it's okay to put off following Jesus because you can do it when you get older? Have you treated Jesus simply as an add-on to your life rather than allowing him to reign over its entirety as Lord? What things do you need to recognize as rubbish and discard from your life? Dearly beloved, Jesus is all about rolling away stones. He wants you to enjoy the power of his resurrection until the time he comes again to bring you into his eternal kingdom. So the time is now to clean house, to get rid of the grave clothes, to prepare for his imminent return. Advent is a season to examine ourselves, to see all that needs to be stripped away. And during the season, we should be earnestly praying the words of Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there 
be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Dearly beloved, it's time for us to live holy lives to the glory of God. Let us pray together. Lord, as we await the coming again of Jesus Christ, make us a holy people. By the power of your spirit, set us apart for your glory. Help us to declutter our lives, remove all from us that keeps us from welcoming your presence and serving you. For we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Nicene Creed. Dearly beloved Christian, in whom do you believe? We believe in one God.